We all know what it feels like to be on the receiving end of a kindness that seems to have strings attached, right? A kindness that seems to be motivated more out of the giver's own self-interest than out of a true spirit of generosity. Uh, the classic example for me of this is the guys I'll refer to as the squeegee guys. Um, if you remember, if you grew up in this area in the 70s and 80s, you might remember there were certain intersections in Philadelphia you could pull up to, and you'd stop at the red light, and immediately these guys would descend upon your cars, and they'd start squeegeeing your windshield. And some of them got really good at kind of getting started and then finding out, all right, are you going to you have anything for me? Is there anything for me in this little transaction? And so very quickly you would learn that, you know, maybe if you were from out of town, you might have been fooled at first, like, wow, city of brotherly love. It's really true. The, the welcoming committee's here. They're washing my windshield. But you'd learn very quickly that there was an expectation. And by the way, I don't blame the squeegee guys. They were trying to do something, and there's something commendable in that. Um, but the point is, from the perspective of the recipient, there are certain kinds of generosity that we can almost feel like we need to be on our guard against because really, in truth, they're nothing more than a thinly veiled attempt to obligate us to do something in return. This reciprocity ethic, this, this idea that I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine, uh, was very strong in the Greco-Roman world that Jesus lived in. It was pervasive in Jewish society of that time as well. And so as Jesus sits at the table of this Pharisee, he knows well the mindset that he's addressing. One would act in a, in a particular way, in a generous way, toward others in order to obligate a similar response. And conversely, if someone extended a kindness to you or, or a generous gesture to you, you would feel an obligation, even an ethical obligation, to return the favor. So now, now this reciprocity ethic may not be as strong in the world that we live in today, but if we're honest, we really have to admit that there's very little we do in life that isn't somehow motivated by our own self-interest, right? And, and on a certain level, this is not always bad. Think about the business context, right? The ideal business transaction is if I'm happy to provide a product or a service to you for X number of dollars, and you're happy to to part with X number of dollars for that product or service, that really defines the ideal business transaction. And by the way, if that sounds like an endorsement of free market economic principles, it is. Um, but that's not my point. My point is simply to say that reciprocity in and of itself is not wrong. It's not evil. However, as Jesus so often does, he goes beneath the surface here, and he comes to us with questions that probe deeper into our hearts and our motivations and, and calls us to go beyond these natural, normal human tendencies. See, what Jesus calls us to here is a selfless love that expends itself for others without regard for what they can give us in return. And I probably don't need to tell you that this doesn't come naturally to us. In our sinful nature, in, uh, in, in, in our fallen state, we are bent toward doing things that are in our own self-interest and neglecting things that don't really offer any benefit to us at all. And so against the grain of his own ancient culture, against the grain of our cultures of today, against the grain of our 
humanity and our sinful nature. Jesus calls us here to a true Christian generosity that goes beyond the bounds of reciprocity. In fact, one of the defining characteristics of generosity that is uniquely Christian, in other words, not just human generosity, not just what we're able to do because we're made in the image and likeness of God, but what we do because of our faith. The the defining characteristic of this generosity is its intentional focus on those who could do nothing to repay it. Jesus says, you want to know whether your love is truly Christian love? Love those who have no capacity to love you in return. You want to know whether your generosity is like that of your Father in heaven? Give to those who can do nothing to repay you. This is generosity in its purest form, and Jesus wants to be sure that it's a present and visible trait in the lives of his disciples. Now, I would be remiss on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Wow, I loved Kenny's uh, comments on that in, in communion. It was beautiful. I would be remiss if I didn't mention the unborn as part of this category of well, as well of people who can do nothing to repay us. If we are to do a kindness to the unborn, there is little they can ever do to even know who we are, let alone repay us. Uh, I was thinking uh, in this, oh, by the way, I'm on, the, on a mission from my wife, Rachel, who leads the 40 Days for Life campaign for Chester County, to thank you for your participation in uh, the 40 Days for Life campaign and encourage you to, to press on in this. Um, if you've ever read the book Unplanned by Abby Johnson or seen the movie, which, both of which I, I recommend, Abby Johnson was a Planned Parenthood director who eventually came to Christ and now she's an advocate for the unborn. Um, she said that they hated the days when those peaceful, prayerful vigils were taking place outside of her clinic. And it wasn't because these people were hateful, it was because there was the, the uh, no-show rates would spike on those days when people were just peacefully and prayerfully outside the clinic. Because this is uh, likely to be some, that, something that maybe a woman who feels desperate is intending to do but would rather do in secret um, because her conscience is, is disturbing her. And so many people, up to 75%, she said, would, would uh, just not show up on those days. And now I was thinking about that. That child may be born. Maybe two weeks later, that young mother feels a kick for the first time and just can't reschedule that appointment. And that child is born. That child will never know who it was who was out there that affected his or her life in a profound way. So I just want to encourage you to, to continue to press on in that work as well and encourage all of us as we think of this category of those who cannot repay us. Jesus gives example, the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Let's also include the unborn in this category as well. Let's think broadly about that category. Let's think broadly about the concept of generosity as well. We'll certainly be talking about financial generosity, and this church has been very generous in that way. Uh, let's also think in terms of generosity with our time, generosity with our attention and our voice, especially as we're thinking of those who are literally voiceless. So in the remainder of my time in the Word, I just want to draw out two observations about this generosity that Jesus commends to us here. Two points about this generosity. Number one, it takes selfless, Christ-like initiative. 
This generosity takes selfless, Christ-like initiative. Now, contrary to the way that Jesus' words may sound to us at face value, he's not forbidding us from having our family, our close friends, those who are closest to us in life over for our little dinner party. Um, If he was commanding that, he would be commanding us to violate other scriptures that tell us we are uh, to to care for our family and, and those who are close to us. Remember, he's at the table of a Pharisee here. He's speaking in hyperbole. He's speaking in strong language because he knows what their practices are. He knows what our human tendencies are, as we've just been reflecting on. And so he's using strong language to jar us out of our complacency, to jar us out of our comfort zone, and to make a point. What point is Jesus making? He's saying that as God's people, our generosity shouldn't be limited to that which is normal. It's normal to be generous toward those who can return the favor to us somehow. As disciples of Christ, we're called to take generous initiative toward those who can't repay us. And listen, we're called to do that precisely because they can't repay us. I just love the way Jesus explains the reason why we shouldn't invite our friends, our family, the rich who we might want to hang out with to our little dinner party. He says, as if it should be intuitive to us, quote, lest they also invite you and you be repaid. It's like, oh yeah, Jesus, I get it. What a tragedy that would be. I invite Elon Musk and his wife over to my house. We have a nice dinner. They invite me over to their presumably palatial estate in return. Maybe he says, hey, let's go up on SpaceX. This one's on me. Um, That would be a tragedy, right? No, Jesus is not suggesting that that would be a tragedy. What he's saying is, that's the way the world thinks. That's the way the world operates. If your generosity remains only within those bounds... What difference really has the grace of God made? Again, verses 13 and 14 in in this chapter. Jesus says, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, we could say the unborn, and you will be blessed. Why? Because they cannot repay you. He doesn't say despite the fact that they can't repay you. He doesn't say you'll be blessed even though they can't repay you. No, you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. There's a cause-effect relationship here. The blessing for you is the direct result of the fact that you have selected, as the object of your generosity, those who cannot return the favor. And as you take initiative toward those who cannot repay you, fully aware that they cannot repay you, Jesus says that God will repay you for that very same reason. And this, Jesus says, is one of the things that ought to characterize us as Christians and distinguish us from the world. See, this is a characteristic that differentiates Christian love from love that we might think of as normal or natural, even apart from faith. Earlier in Luke's gospel, Jesus spoke in similar terms uh, when calling us to love even our enemies. Um, You can turn back to Luke chapter 6 if you want, but I believe we have this on a slide as well. Beginning in verse 32, Jesus says, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good 
and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. I hope you picked up the, the similar logic there that Jesus was using. How do we demonstrate that we are sons and daughters of the Most High? Well, it's not by merely doing the same things that are possible and even normal apart from faith. As Jesus might say, what credit is that to you? How does that distinguish you from the world? The world neglects to show kindness toward those who can do nothing to repay it. But Jesus says, not so with you. It shall not be so with us as his disciples. We demonstrate that we are children of our Father in heaven and disciples of his son, Jesus, by taking initiative where it wouldn't be natural, where it wouldn't be normal for us to do so, by loving even our enemies. I think sometimes we get so used to hearing these words roll off Jesus's tongue that we don't, we forget how radical that is. Love even your enemies. And by intentionally ensuring that our generosity extends to those who can do nothing to repay us. Now, let's bring the scene back to our Pharisees' table because there's a most profound accent placed on Jesus' exhortation in one simple fact. And it's, it's a fact that goes right over the head of his original hearers. We should see that it doesn't go over our heads this morning. That simple fact is this, the one who is sitting there with them at this table is himself, God incarnate. He is sitting there with them because he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself, took the form of a servant, and went and and took initiative toward those who could do nothing to repay him, do nothing in return for him. Soon he will turn toward the cross where he will give all. He will die even the death of crucifixion. For who? For those who could never repay him for his sacrifice. And Listen, if you're here today or maybe you're tuning in by the live stream and you are not a Christian, maybe you're considering the claims of Christ, the claims of, of God and Scripture upon your life, There's one thing you need to get very clearly, and Kenny Kenny said it beautifully in the communion this morning as well. You don't come to Jesus as a way of repaying God. There is nothing you can do to repay God for the wrongs that you've done, for the kindnesses that he's shown you. You come to Jesus as an act of faith, believing that his death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave are sufficient to cover the penalty for your sin and restore your relationship to God. But for those of us who are already in a position of faith this morning as we hear this word, I I trust you see the rich gospel truth that's bound up in what Jesus is calling us to here. Be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. Take initiative toward those who can do nothing to repay you. Lavish them with love and with kindness and with generosity. Why? Because that's exactly what Jesus did when he left the riches and the glory of heaven to seek and save lost sinners like you and me. This generosity that Jesus commends to us takes selfless, Christ-like initiative toward those who could do nothing to repay it. 
Well, secondly, the second observation about this generosity is simply that it's driven by faith. This generosity is driven by faith. Even as Jesus calls us here to a generosity that is not self-interested, he simultaneously lifts our eyes to a reward that can only be seen through the eyes of faith. Verses 13 and 14 again. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Amazingly, as we put off the the human tendency to be motivated by the things of this world and take initiative instead toward those who can do nothing to repay us in this world's terms, Jesus promises us that we will be rewarded in eternity. And this is a reward that can be embraced only by faith. It's not something we can see or grasp in the here and now. We, we simply need to trust Jesus and take him at his word that what we sacrifice in this life will accrue to our benefit in eternity. And this, brothers and sisters, is the great paradox of giving in the kingdom of God. It is a sacrifice to give toward those who can do nothing to repay us. We shouldn't pretend that it's not a sacrifice. It is. It will cost you money. It will cost you time. It will cost you effort. Uh, and towards someone who cannot return the favor to you in any way. But when we consider that sacrifice in light of the eternal reward that Jesus promises us here, it really is no sacrifice at all. It's better thought of as an investment. Uh, and I don't, I don't know anything about Bitcoin. I can't promise you anything about the stock market. But this, brothers and sisters, is an investment that is beyond secure. Um, now, when you think about it, there are many sacrifices that we make in this life for a reward we expect to receive later. Kenny, one thing I know Kenny and I share in common is we love gardening. So I love to get out there in the spring. Oh, did you stop? I don't know. We haven't been in touch about gardening that much. Amy, what happened? Um, so I love gardening. Let me speak for myself. <laughs> I love getting out there in the spring. I love getting some dirt under my fingernails. And, and you know, in a very short-term way, you, you make a little effort and you receive the fruits of that effort effort a few months later. Well, one of the things I've really taken a a liking to in recent years is um, perennial fruit-bearing bushes. So we have 11 different blueberry bushes now planted around my yard. And um, I, you know, had to do a lot of research to really understand what makes a blueberry bush thrive. I had to amend the soil because they really like acidic soil. So you get the right kind of components to that soil. And they like, you know, they have very shallow roots. So you need to mulch a lot around them and you try to use some Uh, organic materials that will leach into the soil and maintain that acidic quality. Well, the other thing that I learned, and I was planting these from little baby bushes, in the first three years, what they advise is you're supposed to pinch the blossoms off of the plants. You just pull them off and drop them on the ground. Now, as you probably know, those blossoms are what become the berries. And so the whole point of my doing this is to have berries, right? But for those first three years, you're told to pinch the blossom. And what that does is it tells the bush, what I want you to do is focus all your energy on building a strong root system, building a strong base, and then that that bush might produce berries for you for 75 years thereafter if, if you give it a context where it can flourish. 
Well, I remember doing that the first couple of years. It wasn't that hard. You know, there's not that many berries that I would have had anyway. But I remember that third season. I really, I've been at this for a while now. I really want to taste these berries. And there were more of those blossoms. I was just tempted to leave them there. But I did what I was told. I pinched the blossoms. And sure enough, last year we had 72 um, pints of of blueberries. So stop over if you want some blueberries next summer. Um, (coughs) We can't eat them all. just, now, think about it. That third season, I was so tempted to just have a handful of berries, right? What Jesus is asking us here is, do you want to be satisfied with a handful of blueberries now, or will you believe me that I'm telling you the truth, that what you sacrifice now, you will accrue a reward that you cannot even fathom in the future? See, Jesus is lifting our eyes to this this reward that can only be seen through the eyes of faith. And I believe that God is pleased. He's even uniquely glorified in a way when we live our lives in light of that reality. We simply live our lives believing that what Jesus told us, even though we can't grasp it, that what he told us is true. When we fix our eyes, not on the things that are seen, but on the things that are unseen. Because the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Jesus is lifting our eyes to that unseen reward, which, though unseen, is every bit as real as our tangible sacrifice, only far more lasting. Uh, Several years ago, I became aware of a couple in my home church who were sponsoring seven children through our orphan sponsorship program. Again, I'm about to tell you about that program. But seven children. Now, that Caught my attention, but honestly, that wasn't the most notable thing to me because we have people who are sponsoring even more children than seven. And by the way, I don't look through our database at my friends' names to try to find out how many kids they're sponsoring. I just stumbled upon this information. And once I I became aware of it, I just felt like, wow, uh, that's amazing because the most notable thing to me about this couple sponsoring seven children is the fact that I know them and I know that they are living just a very normal American lifestyle. They are not wealthy by American standards uh, by any stretch. And so once I became aware of that, I just felt like, no, I should drop them a note in the mail and just tell them how blessed I am to see that they're uh, sacrificing that much for the children in our program. Well, that note in the mail led to a conversation the next time we bumped into each other, and I came to understand that they began, uh, just like most of us did when we launched the program, which is way back in 2003 now, when we launched our sponsorship program, they started by sponsoring one or two children. Uh, but then they just followed a process of each year adding one more child, kind of based on the principle that, all right, each year the breadwinner of this family gets an increase. Um, the Lord provided well for us last year. Uh, he's given us an increase now. Let's share a little bit of that increase with another child in need. Um, later, they actually even started giving a monthly gift toward our general fund because I'll tell you about some projects, some schools that we're building and things like that, and they wanted to participate in those projects as well. And Listen, my, my point in, uh, oh, by the way, I actually wrote in my notes as well because I checked the database. It's been a while since I gave this message. Uh, originally, I checked the database. This couple is sponsoring 13 children now, so apparently they've continued with this practice through the years. Uh, my point in, in raising that example is not to suggest that all of us should be sponsoring 13 children or all of us should be adding one new child each year. My point is simply to say this. This is not a couple of significant means. 
the sacrifice they're making is real. They could use those funds for some other purpose in their lives, and none of us would look at them and call them self-indulgent. But this is a couple whose eyes are fixed, not on the things that are seen, but on the things that are unseen. They are sacrificing for a reward that's being kept in heaven for them, where moth and rust will not destroy, where thieves cannot break in and steal. I don't know about you, but I want to live my life in light of that reality as well. Now, when I think of this exhortation to be generous toward those who can do nothing to repay us, I can't help but think of the children in our orphan sponsorship program. Um, If you are sponsoring children through this program, it is virtually impossible that they will ever be able to do anything to thank you for your kindness to them or to repay you in any way. Well, that's exactly the kind of generosity that Jesus is commending to us in this passage. It's precisely this kind of generosity that he promises to repay at the resurrection of the just. And and that phrase, the resurrection of the just, just puts me in the mind of Jesus' parable in Matthew 25. You know the one I'm talking about? Um, Where we will be standing before the Lord, and he will say to us, Enter into your rest, for when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. And we'll say, Jesus, when did we see you hungry? When did we see you thirsty? When did we see you in prison? And he'll say, even as you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. Now, that part we know for sure because it's biblical. Uh, The part that my imagination just starts running wild is that I, I just imagine Jesus in that moment pulling up a young lady by his side and saying, I want to introduce you to Chalcedon. Chalcedon was born with HIV in Ethiopia. She had lost both of her parents to AIDS. She was on a trajectory to lose her own life of AIDS, but you intervened. You gave to her when there was nothing she could give you in return. Eventually, this brought a lady named Helena into her life. Helena shared the gospel with her, led her to faith. Chalcedon is here today because you gave when there was nothing she could give in return. Well, this is Charles. I want to introduce you to Charles. This is, uh, he was a young boy in Zambia when he lost both of his parents. He was being raised by his grandparents, and through your sponsorship, he was able to go to Lighthouse Christian School. They had a VBS at Lighthouse, and he gave his life to Jesus as a young boy. He later got trained as a teacher and influenced the lives of so many other children. And it all started because you gave to him when there was nothing he could give you in return. Think of the ripple effects throughout eternity. I love to just think about our sponsored children as future mothers and grandparents. And they came to know Jesus as children. And they later shared the love of Jesus with their children and their grandchildren. The ripple effects that will take shape throughout eternity. All the lives that will be touched through the lives that we're touching. Well, I believe that part of our reward will be the joy of seeing with the eyes of eternity the full glorious impact of our acts of kindness and generosity in this life. Now, it takes the eyes of faith to see that in the here and now. And and I couldn't be more grateful for the, the faith that God has given to so many who've invested generously into our mission in Covenant Mercies for almost 20 years now. So I'm going to turn the corner and start to update you. And uh, for those who are newer, to introduce you 
to the ministry of Covenant Mercies. And, and by the way, I really want to thank this church. You've been a faithful, generous uh, financial partner through the church and also many of you individually sponsoring children and giving to Covenant Mercies through the years. So I, I, I hope you will feel the pleasure of the Lord as I tell you about some of the fruit of, of those investments. Um, the main centerpiece of our, our ministry has always been what we call our orphan sponsorship program. And through that program, we have sponsors who give $39 a month, invest that into the life of a fatherless child in the community of our indigenous partners in Uganda, Ethiopia, and Zambia. And then we build teams within those indigenous churches that go out into the community and deliver that care to the children, primarily in the, in the context of their extended families. So the children are fatherless if they're part of our program. Sometimes the mother is still alive and we try to keep that family unit intact. Other times grandparents are taking care of the children or aunts and uncles have taken them in. And then our church partners are able to go and deliver the love of Jesus to this family and practical care as well in the categories of, of nutritional care, medical care, and educational care. Um, we're, we're at an exciting point in our ministry. We've just to tur turned the corner into our 20th anniversary year. Um, this means that many of the kids we started with are now graduating from our program and, and stepping into life as, as responsible young adults. Uh, and through 20 years of ministry now in sub-Saharan Africa, we've learned that effectively breaking cycles of poverty in our children's lives really requires an an intentional and uh, increasingly direct investment in the education of the children. From day one, we've placed a, a big accent on education, but, but uh, if you're sponsoring children in a region where maybe uh, there's uh, just a couple of primary schools and, and everybody goes and, and there's like 100 students in one classroom, one teacher, I don't know if there are any teachers in the room, but imagine trying to teach a child to read with 100 students in the classroom and probably no teacher assistant, maybe just a couple of books to share. And so if our goal is to see our children restored to everything God has created them to be as his image bearers, which is, that is how we define our goal in the life of each and every child, to restore them, to, see, to be God's hands and feet in restoring them to everything he's created them to be as his image bearers, well, that being our goal, education is critically important. It's, it's a critical tool in our toolbox. And 100 students in a single classroom is a, is a major obstacle for us. And so that's why 15 years ago, uh, we began collaborating with our partners in Zambia in building Lighthouse Christian School. We just sponsored a, a classroom of kindergarten students, and then each year we just added one new grade, so the kindergartners become next year's first graders, and then the following year the second graders, and the school just expanded through the years like that to the point where now we are sponsoring over 300 students each and every year to receive quality Christian education at Lighthouse. Uh, we've also partnered uh, or collaborated with our partners there in developing the campus, we bought land, started the the build the structures. Uh, you can go ahead to the next slide. And I think we've got one that shows you the Lighthouse campus. So those are the first couple of school buildings that we built there. Um, this past year, we've been engaged in a project there uh, to uh, build the latest building. This, this newest building will have a library, a computer lab, science lab. Uh, it'll have a large assembly hall. And uh, you'll see this next slide as well. We are calling this, this uh, building the Chanda Center 
for Education, named after our dear friend and partner, Will Broadchanda, who the Lord took home uh, a year ago this week, actually. So that's the, that's the entry of the almost completed Chanda Center for Education. Um, well, we've been so pleased uh, with the fruit of this investment into Lighthouse through the years uh, that a couple of years ago, in March 2019, I guess that's getting close to three years ago now, we broke ground on Hope Community Primary School in Kibura in western Uganda. Um, this was after spending much of 2018, I think we got a photo of, of groundbreaking day, of in Uganda, you're going to see some happy people. Uh, <laughs> there it is. Uh, that, that smiling man on the far right there is Moses Nkwatsibwe. He's our partner pastor there. And this is uh, some of our team and some of the construction team as well, breaking ground on that school project. That was after spending most of the prior year uh, working with engineers in Uganda. You can go ahead and shift to the next slide. Um, engineers in Uganda develop a comprehensive site plan. And when I say we, I'm, in this case, I'm really saying David Mayinja. Um, your own David Mayinja um, teamed with uh, a, a group of engineers on the ground in Uganda to develop this site plan for the school. And then by God's grace, through the investment of, of so many partners, including your church, um, we have made significant progress toward that plan already. So now you're seeing an overhead of the buildings that we've already built on our way to developing that campus through the years. We were able to open that school in uh, February 2020. Well, I said February 2020, so that means we closed it the next month, uh, like all schools around the world. And Uganda has really had fits and starts in getting their uh, schools back up and open again, but by God's grace, the school just reopened for the new school year in January. Um, we've got some pictures of the children in the classroom as well. And then, uh, as you're looking at those smiling children, I want to show you a, a brief video as well of Rosabella, our head teacher at Hope Community Primary School, just telling you a little bit about uh, their beginnings, and it'll give you a, a, a chance to get up above the campus and, and see some of those structures as well. So let's go ahead and roll that video. You're welcome to Hope Community Primary School. I'm called Sabit Rosabella, the head teacher of this school. My purpose here is uh, to direct my staff on what they are supposed to do and be in the vision of the school.
thank you so much for loving us, for supporting us, and supporting our children. I'm, I'm sure you saw David Mayanja at the end of that video. I could not thank God for this man more, and, and it's really, uh, his fingerprints are all over this project. It's very exciting. Well, another exciting development in our uh, ministry the last few years is the establishment of the Mapalo Scholarship Fund for Higher Education. So our sponsorship program takes children all the way through graduation from high school or vocational school, um, but for those who are able to continue on for higher ed, we have established a scholarship fund that they can apply to. And one of our current Mapalo scholars is a young man named Michael Nkata from Ndola, Zambia. He went to Lighthouse Christian School from grade two. Um, after he lost both of his parents to HIV AIDS, he was raised by an aunt in the community. Um, started at Lighthouse in grade two and just immediately was a standout student. So the uh, okay, I think you're looking at a picture of Michael circa 2008 or something like that. Um, he later graduated with such high scores on the uh, college entrance exams that he was offered a 75% scholarship by the Zambian government, and then he applied and we gave uh, gladly the final 25% so that he could uh, go to uh, the University of Zambia as a pre-med student. And um, Michael described his desire to become a doctor on his Mapalo scholarship application form, his desire to be a doctor, and his desire to serve the underserved as a doctor in the following way. He said, being an orphan and being raised in a community of people with low social status has made me want to study hard and be one person who came from such a background and still made it in life and be able to give hope to people where hope has died. I just remember reading that when I first got uh, my eyes on that application, reading that and thinking, you know, Michael is able to pursue that dream today because somebody gave him hope where hope might have died. Uh, because someone gave when there was nothing Michael could possibly do to repay them. And all of this in response to Jesus who gave all for us when there was nothing we could do to repay him. Well, there are many ways that we can apply this word today, and I really do uh, pray that the Holy Spirit will lead all of us in applying this word very broadly. But I, I want to give you a, a few ideas of ways that you could consider joining hands with Covenant Mercies uh, if you would like to consider that today. Um, your sponsorship of children mobilizes partners like Moses and Kwatsibwe, like uh, the Chandas and others in Zambia, to invest themselves in the lives of our children and the families who are raising them. Uh, your investment into the schools that we're developing provides our children with a five-day-a-week Christ-centered context where we can not only provide them with higher quality education, but be able to uh, that much more be able to um, invest in their lives spiritually and even in their character development through the years. Years down the road, having made those early investments, we expect more of those children to be able to achieve Mapalo scholarships. So we're continuing to build that fund today. And in the end, we trust that these young people will graduate, uh, they will take their place in society as influencers in their families, in their churches, in their communities, in their workplaces, and those ripple effects that we were kind of dreaming out loud about earlier will take shape and go out through eternity. 
Uh, there, we have a table downstairs. If you came in from the downstairs, you saw a big display. I'll be down there, very happy to answer any questions that you may have. Uh, we have uh, profiles of children who are awaiting sponsors if you want to consider sponsorship. Uh, we also have these beautiful um, t-shirts, the Do, Love, Do Justice, Love Mercy t-shirts that we sell as just one of the many ways that we raise funds for those projects. By the way, your sponsorship of children is a direct investment into that child's life. We don't use any of those sponsorship funds to pursue these other projects, so they're just other ways that we raise funds for those purposes. Um, I'd be happy to, uh, if you have any questions about different ways that you might want to get involved, really happy to have those conversations with you downstairs, so please stop by that table. Regardless of what you decide in terms of, of joining hands with Covenant Mercies today, may we all be disciples who grow in generosity toward those who can do nothing to repay us, confident with the full confidence of faith that God will repay us at the resurrection of the just. Amen.